1: I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. If you're a regular listener, you know that we talk about the drug crisis in San Francisco a lot. It feels like every week, there's something new to say about the toll of fentanyl, or someone's personal journey to recovery, or how people are divided over potential solutions. That last issue, Solutions, was the subject of a recent conversation I hosted in front of a live audience at Manny's In The Mission, Last month, Fifth Emission brought together people on the front lines of the drug epidemic in the Bay Area to look for answers to one very big question. How do we solve the overdose crisis? There's never been a more urgent time to find answers. According to the San Francisco Chronicles overdose tracker, more than 560 people have died of overdoses in San Francisco this year, putting 2023 on pace to be the city's deadliest year. Our panelists combat the drug overdose crisis in a number of ways, as employees of county public health departments, peer counselors who help guide people into recovery, and medical professionals who administer direct treatment. On today's episode, you'll hear excerpts from our conversation at Manny's. It was a live event, so the audio quality is different from what you're used to on Fifth Emission, but I hope you find the conversation helpful. We talked about judgment-free services, harm reduction policies, the role of the police, and the importance of housing and hope. First up, access to treatment. In 2008, San Francisco voters passed a proposition that requires the city to have adequate, free, or low cost substance abuse treatment available on demand. I wanted to know if the city has met that obligation and what the options look like for someone who wants treatment in San Francisco. I asked that question to Sarah Short, the coordinator of the San Francisco Treatment On Demand Coalition. Sarah is also the director of public policy and community organization At Home Rise, a supportive housing provider in the Tenderloin.
2: San Franciscans, most San Franciscans would not know that, that there was actually a ballot measure passed requiring the city to provide treatment to all who need it and want it and to fund it commensurate with the need. And they wouldn't know that because that hasn't happened, obviously. We put together the um, Treatment on Demand Coalition to basically hold our city accountable to that measure. One of the issues that has arisen is that there's not really a great measurement, nor has there been really the resources applied to ascertaining what exactly that need is. And so one of the things we have been kind of a broken record about is, look, you really need to be figuring out how many people are really out there and not just saying, okay, we did it. We know that the universe of people who are actually out there suffering related to substance use is much higher than those who show up at the doors asking for it, right? And without an earnest effort to go out there and you know do the outreach do the education and really be talking to people in all sorts of communities well then you're going to be leaving a lot of people out and so that's critically important that question of how do you access treatment if you do decide yes i want to get help what does it look like or feel like in this city so that partly depends on the type of help you want so some types of Treatment options are much more readily available than others. Navigation can be a real issue for people too, just knowing even where to start sometimes. So say you're a woman, it's just not gonna feel comfortable to, for you to be in a co-ed environment. Say you're a monolingual Spanish speaking person who really needs to be you know, in a place where they have people speaking Spanish. That's not going to be as available to you. And these are just examples. So, if you want this sort of straight up, you know, medically assisted treatment, which I'm sure we'll hear about, and you kind of know where to go and you're able to, you know, sometimes even wait like, okay, but you were going to go to detox first and then you're going to do that. And then, you know, the slot will open up. And as soon as we get to bed, you can go, you know, well, then we do have treatment available. And I'm grateful for that but we know the severity of the crisis demands that much more. We're still not to the point where we have like literally enough beds, enough uh, facilities. Staffing is a huge, huge issue. So it's got to be the whole picture, but we got to start somewhere. And even if we're just, you know, expanding, expanding, expanding all the time, that's what we should be doing. and, And we're definitely not.
1: While round-the-clock treatment remains elusive in San Francisco, some Bay Area providers have made it a core tenet of their care philosophy. That includes Dr. Lee Trope. She's a pediatric hospitalist at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose who treats a group of people we don't normally think of as struggling with opioid addiction, teenagers, some as young as middle schoolers. Trope shared what the drug overdose crisis looks like for that population.
3: There was a paper that came out that said that less than 5% of teens that want treatment have access to any medication in this country. So the teen population, my workforce, has really been failing this crisis. I mean, you talk to adults, I mean, I don't talk to adults that much, but my adult colleagues tell me in my job, um, <laughs> my adult colleagues tell me that, you know, this is actually a pediatric disease. Like when you talk to adults, they started when they were teens. So I find that it's actually our responsibility, I think, as pediatricians to be screening and treating for this really challenging disease. And so I don't think a lot of people know what's happening in the, the communities of young people um, these days. But... The, the drug landscape, at least in Santa Clara County where I work, is very, very different from when I was a teenager. The way that my patients start using, um, typically uh, fentanyl, but they don't necessarily know it's fentanyl, there's, they buy counterfeit pills on social media, so Snapchat and Instagram, and there's a bunch of like emojis that mean different substances that you're selling, and they can actually get it delivered to their home like as easily as you could DoorDash. And the pills are really cheap. They're like a dollar each. It's kind of like a minefield. Like your first few steps out there, they really could be your last. Teens need to be informed about what's going on. Mm -hmm. So they don't realize the potency of what they're buying. And that's kind of how the path gets started. We had so many teens dying in 2020 in our community. And there's a program that's trying to get all the emergency departments in in California to start anybody who wants on medications for opioid use disorder like buprenorphine. And since we kind of opened our doors in 2021, we've had 60 teens come through that we start on this medication and then connect them to outpatient services and have just built a large program from there. I don't pretend to know all the solutions, but I think one key principle is when you're ready, the system needs to be ready for you. And that's one of the things that you know, our program can do being a hospital.
1: While direct treatment is one facet of a solution, our conversation at Manny's also explored the question of what solutions should look like when the addiction crisis feels inextricable from issues like homelessness. I directed that question to Karis Boz, who works for Marin County Health and Human Services. Karis leads a project called Seeds of Hope, which helps prevent drug and alcohol deaths in the homeless population. I asked her whether stabilizing housing should come first in addressing drug addiction Or if it's the other way around. In our work in Marin County,
4: overdose is the leading cause of death for people 55 and under, period, at this time. And if you die in Marin County and you are experiencing homelessness or have recent homelessness experience, your death is 13 times more likely to have been related to alcohol or other drugs. So in that community is disproportionate impact. Also nationwide and also locally, people leaving incarceration have a very high elevated risk of overdose. So these are these are populations that have some overlap. Our approach in Marin is very much housing first. So we want to be able to provide people that sense of security and safety first. Like many communities we struggle with having enough capacity for that, but that is very strongly our philosophy and the way we practice and we do find that people are being housed by the coordinated entry system in the order of theoretical vulnerability, so the most vulnerable first and Those folks have a high risk of having a hard time transitioning to being indoors, a high risk of overdose if they've been using in community and now using alone in their apartment, for instance. And some of them fail in housing, uh, often because of meth, actually. I would say meth is our bigger problem in terms of failing out of housing. So then we have housing second. We figure out what went wrong, make a new plan, and try again. Then we have housing third in some cases. So it's a matter of not giving up on someone.
1: And I think what you're describing here is something that people call whole person care. And can you explain what that means? And why is that a really important step in order to get people onto the path of recovery?
4: More plain English, whole person care is the idea that that you're going to do whatever it takes to to help that person move forward in their goals. And we in in the work that we've done in Marin, we definitely have found individuals who who tell us, look, I I just wasn't wasn't able to think about dealing with my mental health or I couldn't really conceive of addressing my substance use until I was housed. Mm -hmm. So we do hear that. And yet there are people for whom the path goes the other direction.
1: Sitting besides Karis Baz was her coworker, Lisa Marie Riley, who also works on the Seeds of Hope program. Lisa Marie is a peer counselor in San Rafael. She's also someone who's been through recovery, and she uses her own experiences to help other women who are working to kick their drug addictions. I asked Lisa Marie, how do we get people on the path to recovery and what her own experience has taught her?
5: What motivated me most was being tired of using and not having many options. And so what got me there was the support of systems and people that had their hands out when I was ready. Watching women come into the home, just having those hands readily available and showing what better looks like Mm -hmm. in four or five years to kind of give them something to hope for.
1: It can take a long time, years in some cases, for people to want treatment. But understanding why people use drugs to begin with could help nudge people towards it. I asked Lisa Marie Riley about how addressing trauma is a critical part of her work.
5: Well, knowing like where they're coming from and having experience has been a big key factor in my success with the ladies tell them like hey it's okay you know in a few years or in some time even 30 days just give it a chance and see where you can land from where you're at right now Mm -hmm. and they believe in me because they can see the difference in my life comparatively to theirs and I explain extensively about my past to them to gain their trust Mm -hmm. and trust is a key thing with them and so you have to go slow with them showing them love and compassion and not criminalizing them or being punitive with them Mm
1: -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you
5: know just being you know like human.
1: Harm reduction strategies and the role of law enforcement often stir up heated debates about solving the drug addiction crisis in the Bay Area. Our panelists from our live conversation at Manny's in the Mission share their thoughts on those topics after a quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? Back to my panel
1: discussion on how to solve the drug overdose crisis, which was recorded in front of a live audience at Manny's in the Mission last month. We discussed one hotly debated topic in the drug overdose discussion, harm reduction. San Francisco employs many harm reduction strategies to try to keep people alive. That includes things like street teams in high drug use neighborhoods and passing out fentanyl testing strips and the opioid overdose reversal medication, Narcan. But the city is missing one major tool for harm reduction, a safe consumption site where people can use drugs under medical supervision. It's controversial, even though evidence shows such places are effective at saving lives. I asked Sarah Short, who's with the San Francisco Treatment On Demand Coalition, to explain what's standing in the way. I also asked her to explain the difference between the harm reduction approach and an abstinence-only one and if the two strategies are mutually exclusive.
2: We did do the biggest one, and we did it for less than a year. It was called the Tenderloin Center. Mm -hmm. 300 overdoses were reversed. So it's a travesty in my mind that we're not continuing to do that. But I'll tell you the sort of you know, official reason why we're not doing it. And this is one of the few issues where there's actually, you know, political, you know, unity amongst the mayor, the board of supervisors, the city attorney, you know, they, even the police department, they all say and have stated publicly that they are on board for safe consumption sites. The reason we're not doing it is because of legal issues, right? The city attorney has advised that it's it's too risky with liability issues. There's been a workaround though, because people are so incredibly creative and resourceful when it comes to these things, when it comes to saving lives. And so it can happen, and the city attorney has approved this, that using what they call the New York model. It can happen essentially with nonprofits or community groups running these and and getting private money. And so as long as the city funding isn't involved, they've said, okay, we can do this. But nonprofits and community groups aren't necessarily in a position to like, come up with that kind of money so easily, nor to themselves risk that liability, right? So it's not so simple. But in the meantime, you should all know that people out there and in the communities and the encampments and you know, et cetera, they're, they're practicing their own safe consumption sites all the time. They are taking care of each other and reducing overdoses if you look at the overall reduction you know a number of overdoses that have been reversed it's most of them are being done by people who use drugs themselves for each other you know they're watching out they're making sure that they're not using alone and people are learning themselves that i i need to not be using alone all of these approaches that again we know works because they've actually you know, had research and you know, there's, there's evidence and data and all of that, and it's a matter of will, it's a matter of funding. What is most important right now for, for our taxpayer money, money to be funding? This is literally life or death we're
1: talking about. Well, I mean, even with all this proven evidence that these strategies work, it's seen as a divisive strategy. People argue over it. And some people argue that it should be an abstinence-only approach. Do you see these strategies as counter to one another? Does it have to be one way or the other? You may, all may have
2: noticed lately that politically there's a real trend towards polarizing things, yeah. right? And this has very much been sort of, I think, hijacked as, as, and, and cre- framed as like a debate. There's abstinence or there's harm reduction, you know. But that's just absolutely incorrect, everybody I know who works in harm reduction says that there's nothing mutually exclusive here. Like Mm -hmm. abstinence is part of harm reduction. It's harm reduction is a spectrum. It's a continuum. And so abstinence fits in that. It's just not the only thing. Yeah. And honestly, it's not the most effective thing. But for some people, it is what's going to get them there. And that's actually what harm reduction means and what the key value and principle of harm reduction is about that. We, we meet people where they are,
1: right? The panelists and I then turned to another polarizing topic, the role of law enforcement in stopping drug overdoses. The panelists had varying ideas on how big of a role the police should play. Lisa Marie Riley, the peer counselor, chimed in first.
5: With the police being involved in overdoses, if they don't have the proper training or the, the knowledge of what to do with an overdose, I think it's going to be kind of hard for it to be effective to even use them. I mean, in my personal experience, I've actually called the police because I needed them to escort someone to the hospital or help with that. And They didn't see the need. Someone's overdosing, they may, like, be charged instead of helped. They would look at the legal issues more than they have looked at
1: the humanity issue. Do other folks have thoughts on that? I mean, taking a more punitive approach, people have said that's going to help push people, force them into treatment by by taking a punitive approach,
3: my area is, is young people and teens, but we get teens who come from juvenile custody and are kind of forced into treatment, and it just doesn't really work. I mean, they get out of custody and they use. I think the key thing that kind of has been talked about, but I'll say more explicitly that I've learned in my short time working with folks who use is that, you know, you, they have to be ready, and one of the things that we do is, you know, we create a safe, supportive, judgment-free environment that they can come back to every time they relapse. The patients that we've had the hardest, the most challenging time with are patients that are forced into treatment because they don't want to, they don't, they're not ready. And so it works for a short time. And then when they're out of that custody environment, all of them, in my experience, have gone gone back to using. And so to me, it just seems like it doesn't work.
4: Yeah, this is a tricky one. And I'll just say the one thing I know for sure is this crisis is not going to be solved unless we hand the power and the control and the reins to the people who use drugs and the people who are in recovery. So those solutions need to come from them and be supported by us and be be part of the conversation. And, and some may say that they believe that more enforcement is appropriate and some may say that enforcement is traumatizing and, and destroys their stability, but it's not for me to stand here and say that.
1: The last voice you just heard was Karis Boz with the Marin County Health and Human Services. Before her was Dr. Lee Trope, the pediatric hospitalist. And lastly, we heard from San Francisco's Sarah Short to weigh in on the law enforcement question.
2: I don't think we need to be asking this question. Will law enforcement help? Because we have done that. We've had decades of that, particularly you know, during the war on drugs. We all know now that that was an utter failure. We wouldn't be where we were today if that had worked. We've given it a chance and it's resulted in more deaths, more people in the jails and the prisons, more trauma, more homelessness. Every layer imaginable of law enforcement has been all over just a very small geographical area in our city for about three months now, trying to use law enforcement to Address what is a public health crisis, that alone is is sort of a very revealing and, and important illustration of the, the answer to the question yeah. you posed.
1: Has there been any steps towards progress? Dr. Lee Trope reminded us of one that happened recently on the federal level.
3: You know, I don't know how many people know this, but until this January, you had, to, in order to be a doctor, to prescribe buprenorphine, you had to have a special X waiver, which meant you had to do a special eight-hour training. So, you know, I could prescribe OxyContin to anybody, but I needed eight-hour training to prescribe buprenorphine to anybody. And it it was this year, this January, that that finally was corrected by the Biden administration. So now if you're a physician and you're you're getting your DEA license, that's our license to prescribe controlled substances renewed, every physician in America has to do an eight-hour training. Now, this is for the first time, Mm -hmm. has to do an eight-hour training in substance use disorder and treatment. Treatment, um, in order to be able to prescribe any controlled substances. So, in the next few years, every physician will theoretically be somewhat trained in how to do this.
1: I did not know that tidbit. And I'm glad you shared that just because, I mean, a sign of progress. We need it. So, thank yeah. you. It's very delayed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We wrapped up our live conversation at Manny's with a lightning round of questions where I asked the panelists to share what they think are the solutions to the overdose crisis, both immediate and long term. First, Looking at a solution that could be implemented in the next month.
3: Narcan everywhere, uh, readily available and everywhere. Just like the way defibrillators are everywhere, Narcan should be everywhere.
1: Solutions in the next year. Safe consumption site. And and we have done
2: it. People are taking it upon themselves because it's that critical. They've gone out and done a guerrilla version of it. And believe me, that will continue to happen and it will happen more if we don't do the more, you know, legit sanctioned version of it. And so why not do the legit sanctioned version of it?
1: And finally, looking at solutions they hoped would be in place five years from now. Well, I would like to see that we
4: are building coalitions with people who disagree with us and putting people who use drugs and people who are in recovery at the center of that process and giving them giving them that spotlight to design a better future for all of us. I agree.
2: There's so many things on that list, but one thing I just want to bring people back to is trauma. If we were doing better at addressing some of these root causes as to why people use drugs, I think naturally that would help us reduce overdose deaths.
1: This episode was an excerpt of the conversation I shared in front of a live audience at Manny's in the Mission, which took place last month. My panelists were Dr. Lee Trope, Karis Spaz Sarah Short, and Lisa Marie Riley. The conversation was inspired by recent Chronicle coverage of the drug overdose crisis, which included the launch of a new online tracker by the Chronicle and Hearst newspapers. The online tracker allows you to drill down to any county in the country to see the monthly drug overdose death rate. If you want to check it out, it's at sfchronicle.com slash odtracker. Thank you to all the panelists for participating in the event. The conversation and event at Manny's in the Mission was produced by Sarah Feldberg. If you want to learn more about upcoming events at Manny's, visit welcometomanys.com slash events. The Chronicle will be back with another live event later this month. Thanks to Gary Baca for editing this episode, Laura Wennis and Keith Manconi for the production help, and thanks to you for listening.